superb. So if you turn to page 801, 801, we'll be going through Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, starting from verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs, the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It's not as though God's word has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are received or regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It is not therefore, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and in my name might be proclaimed all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Continuing um, in verse 19 there. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to, to make out the same lump of clay, some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God... Choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And 
It will happen that in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah had said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that cause, makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Emma. It's good to see you. My name is Paul. If you haven't met, I'm the pastor here. Uh, we're in Romans 9. Uh, we finished our sermon series in Romans chapter 8 at the end of last year. Uh, most preachers stop Romans at chapter 8, or they go straight to Romans chapter 12. We're not going to do that. We're going to look at Romans 9 to 11. It is notoriously difficult, uh, but let me say it is totally liberating. It's refreshing, it is wonderful, it is comforting, and it is challenging. So let me pray, and we'll look at God's Word together. Lord God, we gather tonight as people who long to know you better. We acknowledge, Lord, that we often struggle to hear. We acknowledge that we are often stubborn, and yet we acknowledge how rich and refreshing your scriptures are. So we beg of you, Lord, please, to speak to us boldly and clearly and powerfully tonight. I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let me tell you a bit about my family. I've got a, a brother, I've got a sister. Uh, my mother is still alive. My father passed away 21 years ago. Uh, I'm the only Christian in my family. I became a Christian uh, 21 years ago, 22 years ago this year. And there are many times where I ask God, God, why me? Why did you choose me? And why are the rest of my family not yet believers? I don't know your family backgrounds, but I'm sure there'll be many people here tonight who've got family members or people that they love, friends, who are not believers. And you're asking, why not, Lord? Remember the early days where I was a Christian and I would take every opportunity to, to gospel my family. <laughs> you know, I'd talk about Jesus, I would invite them to events, and I'd give them Bibles, I'd give them tracts, and I would pray for them, and they didn't believe. I still pray for them, and I still take every opportunity to talk about Jesus, both in word and in deed. But I do ask, God, why not? Why not yet? And why have you chosen me? And maybe you know Christian families, you know, the good, godly Christian families, four kids all go through Sunday school together, and the parents read the Bible every night, and yet... Twenty years later, three of those kids are believers and one is not. 
And don't you ever ask, why not? Why are three believers and why is one not? What is God doing there? Maybe you've got a, a, a friend who you have been witnessing to for many, many years. And you're kind of saying, I can't make this any clearer. <laughs> as clear as I can, I've told them that, that God created the world and that we, we need a savior and that Jesus stepped into it. I can't make it any clearer. And you've humbly witnessed to them. And why God? Why don't you save these people? I hope you ask those kind of questions. And I hope that your heart grieves and is filled with anguish and sorrow for those who do not yet know Christ. That's the background to Romans chapter 9. Paul, who met the risen Lord Jesus, who was born a Jew, who wonderfully was converted on that Damascus road, he says in verse 2 of chapter 9, I've got great sorrow. I have unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? There in verse 3, For I, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He says, I look out and there's all these Jews out there and they've heard about Christ and yet they don't seem to accept Christ. And a bit like Moses, he says, I wish that I myself could give it my salvation if they could just be saved. That's my heart for my people. Because they've got all these privileges. Verse 4, theirs is the adoption of sons. They call God their father. And there's the divine glory. They saw the Shekinah glory of, of the almighty holy God. They've got the covenant. They've got the law. They've got the temple. They've got the sacrifices and the worship. They've got it all. But they don't seem to see Christ. And when Paul thinks about the Jewish nations, his heart is full of sorrow and anguish. Why, God? Why did you choose me, God? And yet all these people seem not to believe. Surely you must ask those questions. Remember the key verse in Romans, Romans 1 verse 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And what he's saying there is that, is that the gospel of Christ crucified the gospel of the Messiah who, who dies at Calvary to offer you forgiveness, that is powerful, that is dynamite, that has the power to transform lives. So why don't people believe? I mean, look at the scriptures and God promised that, that Israel would be his chosen people. But as Paul preached about the crucified Christ, people didn't believe and people rejected Jesus. And that raises questions, doesn't it? Like, well, is God trustworthy and is God faithful and can I really believe what God says? And that's the, the backdrop to Romans chapter 9. I've got one major, major point tonight. Here it is. God is sovereign in election. God is sovereign in choosing who will be his people. To quote from verse 15, he says, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. That, that, that's the doctrine of this chapter. And throughout the Bible, God says that he is sovereign. That just means that God is in absolute control of everything in your life. Nothing happens in your life that God is not in control of. 
And so when it comes to your salvation, well, the scripture says, well, God was in control of that as well. God chose you. God is sovereign in choosing who will believe. That means that he decides who will believe and who will not believe. And that means if you're a Christian here tonight, you're only here tonight believing in Jesus because God enabled you to believe. It's not about you choosing God. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that God chose you. It's not that you were, you were seeking or searching after him. He was actually at work in your life, prompting you and prodding you to look at Jesus. And this is the most liberating doctrine, if you understand it rightly. Look, he says in chapter 9, verse 6, he says, it's not as though God's word had failed. So please don't accuse God of not keeping his promise. Why? Because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Just because they're born a Jew doesn't make them one of God's chosen people. Just because you're born into a Christian family doesn't guarantee you're going to be a Christian. That's really hard as a Christian parent. There is no guarantee that your child is going to believe. Paul is reminding us that that the nation of Israel is not the same as God's chosen people. There's always been an Israel within Israel. He's just saying, you know, belonging to God, it's not about your, your race or your background, or it's not a hereditary thing, it's whether God has chosen you. And he gives you two proofs, both from the Old Testament, both from Genesis. He says, firstly, that, that God chose Isaac, but he didn't choose Ishmael. So, so verse 7, Abraham had two children, at least two children, more than two children. But because, not, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as, as Abraham's offspring. Just because you were born a child of Abraham didn't mean that you were chosen. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. And you might be here saying, oh, but Paul, that's because Abraham slept with Hagar and, and Ishmael was the illegitimate child. And so Paul gives you another example in, in verse 10 that says you can't use that argument. Think about Isaac's children. They had the same mother, Rebekah. They had the same father, Isaac. They actually had the same seed because they were twins. Verse 11, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And that is very strong language, isn't it? It's saying that before these twins were born, before they had done anything good or anything bad, God chose one, but not the other. And that is the doctrine of election. God chooses who will be his. It's not about your good works. It's not about your heritage, your descendants, your upbringings, your intelligence, your class. It's not about you. It's got everything to do with the God who calls you. That's verse 11, isn't it? In, in order that God's purpose in election or in choosing might stand, not by works, not about what you do. It's about him who calls you. If you're a Christian, I hope that, you're, hope that is your testimony here. There's a moment in your life uh, where you felt the call of God and God opened your eyes to Jesus and he said to you, it's not about what you do, it's about grace. 
I can't do anything to earn my salvation. And, and you saw Jesus and you saw the cross and you go, wow, you do that for me, I don't deserve that. That's the call of God. And I know that this doctrine is a, is a, is a sticking point for so many people. Before you were born, God chose you. And you might say, I, I don't like that, Paul. My God's not like that. Well, the Apostle Paul anticipates your objections. He says in verse 14, in case you say, that's not fair, God. What, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Maybe you're asking that question right now. Is it unjust of God to call some and not others? And what does Paul say? Not at all. The problem is that we play the justice card and we haven't understood what we really need is the mercy card. Uh, for God says to Moses back in Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. If you know your Bibles, uh, Exodus 33 is an extraordinary chapter. So Moses is up the mountain and he's meeting with the holy God. Uh, and the Israelites, they're, they're down the mountain. And what are they doing down the mountain? They're taking off their golden earrings and they're building a golden calf and they're worshipping an idol. And all of Israel, they're being disobedient, they're being rebellious, they're being wicked, they're being stupid. And the just thing to do of God would have been to wipe them all out. But he doesn't. He has mercy on some of them. He has compassion on some of them. Because that's his character, a God of mercy and a God of compassion. And I hope you know that that's what you need. You don't need justice. You need God's mercy, don't you? Do you remember the story of the, the lady, the wealthy lady who's having her portrait painted? And she's not particularly attractive. And she hires this artist to paint her portrait. And she says to the artist, uh, Sir, make sure that you do me justice. And the artist very cheekily said, Madam, it's not justice you need, it's mercy. And that's what God is saying to you tonight. You don't need justice. If God was just to you, you would deserve condemnation. You don't need justice. What you need is God's mercy. And that's what God shows us. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. Isn't that the biggest wonder? The, the biggest miracle is not that some are saved and some are not saved. The biggest miracle is that, is that God chooses to save anybody. That's the mercy of God. But you might be thinking, oh, if God chooses who he wants, then he can't blame me if I'm not a Christian. And that's the argument of verse 19, where one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? It's not my fault. God's responsible for this. I find verse 20 very humbling. He says, who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Who do you think you are? What kind of relationship do you think you have with the, the, the creator, holy God? He, he's not just your buddy. He's not just your, your, your mate who you can boss around. He's not your, your boss at work who you can complain to or, or whinge about and say, oh, I don't like that. How, how dare you put the God of this universe into the dock and tell God what he should and shouldn't do? Verse 20, shall what is formed, shall, shall the creatures say to the creator, why did you make me like this? 
Doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for, for common use? He's saying, know who you are. You're just a lump of clay. And, and the potter had the right to make you however he wants. Remember Job? Job, who was a good, upright man who knew God. And he learned that lesson the hard way. He had no right to talk back to God and tell God what he should do. And maybe like Job, you and I just learn to put our hand over our mouth and confess that we speak of things that we really don't understand. I mean, th- this is a doctrine that we really don't understand. Why does God choose someone not other? I don't know. I've got no right to say, how dare you, God? Because he is God and I'm not. I, I think the issue with this doctrine is that we're actually quite proud people. In each, in each one of us is this, this little part of us who, who, who thinks that we actually deserve something or we've earned something or we've achieved something and there's something good about us that God says, oh, uh, they, they're worth saving. But the doctrine of grace and mercy and compassion is that there's nothing good that deserves saving, but he's just chosen to have mercy upon you. Or maybe you've just got a very small view of God that you think that you can tell God what to do. And for many of us, I think we need this sort of Copernicus revolution where you have to say, this world does not revolve around me and what I think is right. It revolves around God and what he, what he desires to be right. And when you've understood Romans chapter 9, which is quite a confronting doctrine, isn't it? It's quite a hard doctrine, but it is liberating and it's refreshing. Now let me show you how. What's the response to this? This is the first response, to bow in humble adoration. The God who can plant and uproot nations, the God who determines every event in human history, he's chosen us. And that gets rid of the arrogance and the pride and the protesting. It it humbles you. You see, the shock is not that God would choose uh, Isaac, and not Ishmael. And the shock is not that God would choose Jacob and not Esau. Esau. The shock is that God would choose you. That's the argument of verse 23 and 24. What if God did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? That, that's us. Whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the, from the Gentiles the non-Jews. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people, but they're not really my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. That is the shock, isn't it? I'm assuming here that most of us here are not from a Jewish descent. If you're not from a Jewish descent, the shock and the horror is that actually that God would choose you, a Gentile, to be grafted in and show mercy to you. I do love verse 25. I will call her my loved one. The God of the universe calls you his beloved. And you know that you're not by nature. And when you've grasped that, it is so humbling. Who am I, Lord? I don't deserve anything, but you've had mercy on me. It also changes the way that you view other people at church. Because when you grasp God's mercy and God's election, it totally levels the playing field. 
There's a story of the Duke of Wellington who was a, a very wealthy man in the UK and he was at a village church one day and they walked up to the communion rail and there was this little farmer who walked in front of him and sat next to him and he's at the communion rail and the farmer said to the Duke of Wellington, oh no, you should take the communion first because you're more important than me. And the Duke of Wellington said this, we're all equal here. <laughs> and that's what this doctrine does. We're all equal here. We're all recipients of God's mercy. None of us deserves it. So get rid of your pride, get rid of your arrogance and your rights and your demands and just approach God in this childlike, humble, adoration way. What else does this doctrine teach you? It teaches you to pray earnestly. <laughs> to pray earnestly for all people. So if it's God who chooses, which it is, if it's God who has mercy on whom he has mercy, what can you and I do? We can pray. When you know someone who's not a believer, when you long for that person to become a believer, I hope you're going to pray for them. Pray for those who you love who do not yet know Christ. Uh, Paul prayed. 10 verse 1. Brothers, he says, my, my heart's desire and, and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. I testify about them. They, they are zealous for God. But their zeal isn't based on knowledge. They did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own righteousness. They didn't submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. He, he looks at the, 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 his fellow Jews and he prays for them. He, he has his, his anguish and his sorrow. And, and when you've got that in your heart, you know, when you see the people that you love and they are perishing, I hope you grieve for them and I hope that leads you to your knees in prayer for them. So what does Paul pray for his Jewish friends? He prays that they might understand that they cannot establish a righteousness of their own. It's not about being zealous. It's not about pursuing the law. Let's go back to 9 verse 32. They pursued this law, not by faith, but as if it, as if it were by works. He, he's saying he looks at his Jewish friends and they're all pursuing the law and they're going to church or synagogue and they are wearing the right dress and eating the right food and they're doing the right things. But they think all that law keeping will earn their relationship with God. And so Paul prays that they'd have a right understanding of the law. The law was never given to earn your relationship. The law was always given to enjoy your relationship. And he prays they have a right understanding of Jesus. In verse 32, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, that is Christ. They couldn't see that Christ, 10 verse 4, is the end of the law. It all points to Jesus. And friends, that's what you and I need to pray for people, isn't it? We need to pray that this simple truth that, that Christ saves, that your works can't save. That's why you need to pray. I reckon that is the hard thing about the gospel. It is just too simple, isn't it? If you think about it, it is so simple. Too simple for some. Christ died for you. You can't do anything to earn it. But I want to. But I'm good enough. I've been on the church rosters and I, I, I read my Bible. I do it. That's a good thing to do, but it doesn't earn you your salvation. 
And you and I need to pray for people. Pray that they stop being zealous, zealous for works, and start being zealous for Christ. There's a lady I've been praying for for the last 20 years since I became a, since I became a Christian. And I still pray for her all the time. She became a Christian two years ago. 18 years of praying. And then God brought her to faith. Didn't use me. He, just, he used somebody else. But that's, that's fine, isn't it? It's him who chooses. I just keep praying. I still pray for my brother. I still pray for my sister. I still pray for my family. Please, God, have mercy on them. So who are you committed to pray for? Who are your family and your friends? Are you committed to, to regularly interceding with God for that he might have mercy and compassion on them? That's what this doctrine does. It, it drives you to your knees in prayer. And the, the other thing it does is this. You pray and you, and you preach. So this is the fla- let me flag it, a danger. A danger with this doctrine of God choosing people is that you might say, well... If God chooses people, I won't bother talking about Jesus because he'll just save them anyway. That's not what Paul says. He says the way that people are saved, the way that God chooses to save people is when they hear about Jesus. And if they're going to hear about Jesus, someone needs to tell them. And if someone needs to tell them, it may as well be you or me. The famous verse is in, in, in chapter 10. Look at 10 verse 11. As the scripture says, anyone... Anybody who trusts in Jesus will never be put to shame. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. It's not about race anymore. It's the same Lord is Lord over all, and he richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone, no exclusions, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the wonderful truth, isn't it? When people hear the gospel, when people say, yes, I believe that, they are saved. But there's the question, verse 14, how then can they call on the one they haven't believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they haven't heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And all Paul is saying is that we've heard the gospel, we've got the gospel. It's our privilege, it's our responsibility to proclaim that crucified Christ to your friend, your family, your neighbor. Here's what John Stott says. He says, Unless the gospel is preached, sinners will not hear Christ's message. And unless they hear Christ, they can't believe the truths of his death and resurrection. Unless they believe these truths, they won't call on his name. And unless they call on his name, they will not be saved. And that's the kind of argument. Have you ever thought that perhaps God has placed you in your family, in your workplace, in your social life, with all these people who do not yet believe. But you don't know if and who of those are, are chosen. And all he calls you to do is just to pray for them and to keep preaching Christ. And I find that liberating. It is not my responsibility to save people. That's God's responsibility. But he might use me. What do I do? I pray, and I preach, and I pray, and I preach, and I keep praying, and I keep preaching until the day that I die, trusting that God will choose those whom are his. Isn't that liberating? It just lifts the burden off your shoulder. 
God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Let's just be faithful prayers and faithful preachers of this wonderful gospel. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy that you have lavished us in Jesus. Thank you that in Christ you have shown us that we can be forgiven, that we are forgiven. But we don't deserve your mercy. But we thank you for it. And we do pray, I pray now for all the people in this room who are thinking of loved ones who do not yet know Christ. Lord, do you know them by name? But we don't know whether they're chosen or not. But we do plead with you to have mercy upon them. Save people quickly. Keep us prayerful. Keep us gospeling people. Protect us from pride. And protect us, please, from discouragement. That day by day we may pray and preach for those who do not yet know Christ. I ask that for Jesus' sake.